Okay, um, yes, the title this morning is Healing at the House of Grace. Now, you may ask the question, where is the House of Grace in the Gospel of John? Well, what we're going to look at this morning is the account of Jesus healing a lame man at a place called, a pool called Bethesda which was uh, in the city of Jerusalem. And the word Bethesda means house of grace. So that's why I've called it healing at the house of grace. Now, if you were here last week, you'll remember that I just shared a little bit about the structure of John. I said the first half, the first 11 chapters, is an account of um, Jesus's ministry uh, as given by John. And he's chosen to sort of wrap it around 11 sorry, not 11, seven miracles. Seven miracles, which he calls signs. A sign is different to a miracle. They're both miraculous, but a sign signifies something. So there's a message in each one relating to our salvation, our redemption. Uh, the first miracle was the turning of the water into wine, which is a beautiful picture of the grace of God. Just bring the water of our lives to him and he just turns it and transforms it by his great power into um, the grace of God in our lives. And then the second miracle we looked at last week, which was the healing of the nobleman's son and how he was healed by faith. A great demonstration of faith where we read that he just believed the word of Jesus. Simple. I think there's an amper that says that, isn't it? Simple. I didn't mean to do that, but anyway, simple as it is. Just believe the word of Jesus. And so it's an illustration of how we receive the grace of God. Faith receives what grace supplies. So now we're going to look at the third miracle, which is the healing at the house of grace, which illustrates another aspect of the Christian life. So let's just uh, move into that. And we'll start with John chapter 5. Verses 1 to 4. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Okay, you remember? Jesus left Jerusalem because uh, there was a danger that he was getting too popular too soon. He went through Samaria, Samaria and uh, ministered to the woman at the well and, and that community. Then he moved up to Capernaum, to Galilee. And uh, there was the healing of the nobleman's son and some teaching that happened there. Now he's coming back into Jerusalem for the feast of the Jews, one of the feasts of the Jews. And there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. Now, it's interesting, many years ago when I began my first ministry, I remember reading about uh, these skeptics. Skeptics were very uh, active in those days. Um, in the church, liberal ministers, that didn't believe that the Bible was the Word of God and they spent all their time trying to disprove the Word of God. Should have got another job. But anyway, they were in the pulpit doing that sort of thing. And one of the things they said is that, look, you know, um, they've excavated around this sheep gate. There is no pool there. So that just shows that the Bible is a made-up book. It's a fabricated thing and we don't need to take it seriously. And uh, then uh, sometime after that, they excavated another 15 feet down. And guess what? They not only found the pool, they found the five porches that this speaks about. And uh, so, you know, again, it's, it authenticates what the Word of God teaches. Anyway, we'll move on. In this, in this area lay a great multitude of sick people. 
blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now you might find that a bit strange. It is a bit strange. In fact, if you've got the NIV um, Bible, the nearly inspired version, um, or, 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 or Bibles that are based on the same manuscripts as those, they'll say that this is not actually in the Bible. Although it does go on to say the water was stirred in, in, in those Bible accounts, uh, as we're going to see in the next few verses. Um, so, you know, it, it kind of seems a bit strange that a, an angel would come down, stir up the water, and then the first in got healed. You know, but some strange things happen when people got healed. You know, there's a story in the life of Elijah. In fact, when Elijah died, they carried his body to his grave or the tomb and, and they were just about to put him in the tomb with other bodies there. And I, there was a raid on the, on the country and they had to get out quick. They just dropped his body. It touched another dead body and that person raised again. Well, that's weird, isn't it? That's pretty weird. And then there was a case of Naaman who was told, you know, who had leprosy, full of leprosy. He was told to go and dip seven times in the River Jordan. And he was healed. That's a bit strange as well. And then when you come to the New Testament and uh, Peter passing by the sick, his shadow falling on the sick, or being cast on the sick, and they were healed. That's a bit strange, isn't it? Amen. And, and Paul sending handkerchiefs or cloths to the sick people, laying it on them, and they were healed. All these things. I mean, don't get focused on, if you're focused on this, you're focused on the wrong miracle. <laughs> the real miracle is the one Jesus did. So we'll get back on track and see what happened there. Okay, let's read on then. Now, a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. Think about that. 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Now the man had been there waiting for 38 years. That's longer than Jesus would, was on earth. The whole length of Jesus' time on us with 33 years. He was sick and in this condition before Jesus was even born in Bethlehem. In fact, he's reckoned that the average lifespan back then was only about 40 years anyway. So why did Jesus choose this man? He, he only healed this one man. The place was full of sick people and he came to this and we know the answer. Because Jesus did what his father was doing. He was in tremendous harmony with his father. Most assuredly, he says this later on in this chapter, okay? Most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does. That's a beautiful picture of the son abiding in his father's love, showing us the example of the abiding life that we are, we, we're not here to call, you know, to meet every need. As Jesus said, the poor you have with you always. If, if, if you try to respond to every need, you'll burn yourself out. 
But if you do what the Father wants you to do, you'll know the grace of God working through you, just like Jesus. Okay, let's move on. Jesus first asked the man if he wanted to be made whole. And the man said, is the Pope a Catholic? <laughs> he didn't. No, he didn't, because there was no Popes in those days. Okay. He asked the man if he wanted to be made whole. But, but be made, not just being healed, but be made whole. Get to the root of your problem. Do you want to be healed and transformed? Are you ready for a new life? Because, you know, if somebody was in that condition, they would never work. They'd never be able to work. They'd never be able to take responsibility for their own life. They'd be living off the charity and the handouts of other people. Do you want to be made whole? Are you ready for a new life? Now, well, I want you to see the way this man responds because everything about it initially indicates he had no faith in Jesus. First of all, he had faith in the means, in the pool. Okay, if I can get to the pool... I can be healed. My, that's where my healing is. It's in the poor. Not, so so we, we don't look to the means, but we look to the source. Always look to the source. Whatever God uses. You know, some people, they have faith in pilgrimage, going to a certain place, certain place where there are waters, certain place where there's stigmata, you know, uh, a certain healing campaigns and that sort of thing. And if I get there, I'll get healed instead of looking to Jesus. Amen. But then also we see he looked to man. He said, I have no man to help me into the water. I'm lame. I can't get there myself. I've got no man to help me there. So I can't get healed unless someone helps me. And, and you know, this is an incredible lesson here, important lesson for us, because there's a lot of codependency in the Christian life today. A lot of codependency. But Christ dependency, not codependency, is the goal of authentic Christian ministry. Amen? People can look to other people. It's okay, God uses people, I understand that. But, but, but again, you don't look to the channel, you look to the source. Amen? But people can become codependent. The word codependent, incidentally, means I need that person, and that person needs to be needed. It's a codependency thing. Okay? Um, you know, for a beautiful example of this is, is, and I'm always fascinated by the, the, the revival that took place in Acts chapter 8 in Samaria when Philip went down there. Philip went and preached and there was this tremendous revival. People were getting saved, people were getting healed, there were miracles taking place. And then God takes Philip out of Samaria. We would have said that man is the key man. If anything, he should be looking you know, he should be the one that's there. So we tend to look to people then. When, when God uses someone, we look to them as, as it's gotta, he's got to be there to sustain it, to keep it happening. And God took him out of there and put him in the desert where he led that Ethiopian eunuch to Christ who took the gospel down to his own country. See the way God works? Amazing. <laughs> I always chuckle at this example of codependency when when jesus healed the man who had a, a legion of demons do you know that i mean there could not be a, you know a more kind of serious case than this man he was stacked up to the eyeballs with demons 
He, he was so demon-possessed, he had to be chained because he was violent. He ripped his clothes off and, and then he could even break free with his chains. He had such incredible strength. Jesus came and set him free. Cast all the demons out of him. Now, if anyone needed follow-up, <laughs> you'd think it'd be him, right? If anyone needs to be followed up by, by you know, someone, it would be that man. And he said to Jesus and the disciples, can I come with you? Now, three people asked Jesus something in that, in that situation. Number one, the demons asked Jesus if he would cast them into the swine. They didn't want to be, you know, go anywhere because they want to inhabit a body. Would you cast it? So Jesus obliged the demons and sent them where they asked to go. The people who were hostile to Jesus saw what happened, asked him to leave their country. And he did. He got in the boat and went across the other side. This man, his new convert, just got free of demons. Said, can I come with you? He said, no. <laughs> Don't you find that strange? Because you are a great... Everybody knows you. They know who you were. They can see who you are. Now you need to stay here and be a testimony. I can just imagine the disciples saying, you know, he's, he's going to need a lot of help. But you know what? God is enough. God is with you. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. You know, we sometimes just think, you know, we, we need to be needed. No, we don't. Christ dependency. Get people connected to Jesus, looking to him, trusting in him. That's discipleship. Amen. So he looked to the source, he looked to man, then he looked to himself. While I'm coming, you know, while I'm coming, somebody beats me. But, but I, I'm trying, I'm trying to get there when the water stood up. I'm trying to be the first one, but I just keep failing. And, and can you imagine this man, every time he said, I'll do better next time. I'll work out another way. I'll get closer to the pool or, or, or some way. I'll work out a strategy. Next time it'll be different. Isn't that what we say? As long as we convince ourselves that we will do better next time, that's a sure sign we have not come to the end of ourselves. Now this is all, this predicament demonstrates the poverty of the law. It's a great picture of man being married to the law trying to save himself. Now, why is it a picture? Well, first of all, there were five porches, right? Now, I know this five is a number of grace, and we're coming to that in a minute because this is the house of grace. But five porches, five is also the number of law because there were five books in the, the law, you know, the book of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You knew that, didn't you? Okay, the, the Jews call it Torah. The law, Moses and the prophets. Moses is the five books of the law, okay? Uh, the Greeks call it the Pentateuch. But, but that's a picture of the law. And this great multitude that was at the five porches there, waiting to be healed, uh, representing those under the law, the blind, the lame and the paralyzed, waiting for Messiah to come, but all the time remaining sick until he came. The law was powerless to save. Now interesting, 38 years. See, nothing is incidental in the Bible. Why does it say 38 years? 
38 years the Jews wandered in the wilderness. Did you know that? We say 40 years. Well, when the time they decided not to go into the promised land and they, they wandered around, that was 38 years. The time we took to come from Kadesh by Nia, that's when they sent the spies in to the promised land, until we crossed over the valley of Zered was 38 years. 38 years. Whenever you see numbers that line up like that, there's, there's usually a, a, you know, a, a message. Until all the generation of the man of war was consumed from the midst of the camp, just as the Lord had sworn to them. So 38 years under Moses, under the law, until Joshua, which is Jesus in the Hebrew, took them into the promised land. And also, the world had been waiting 38 centuries for the Messiah. It's a beautiful picture of us struggling and striving under the law. And all that time he was at the very edge of healing, but all his efforts to get into the pool proved unsuccessful. Can you just imagine him just getting as close as he can to the pool, but never being the first one in? In the same way, the law leaves us at the very edge of salvation, but always falling short. Remember that ruler that came to Jesus and said, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? You know the law. Don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't tell lies, blah, blah, blah. He said, all these things I've done. What did Jesus say? One thing you lack. There's always going to be one thing we lack. We always fall short. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The, the glory of God is revealed in the law. The righteousness, the holiness of God. All have sinned and fallen short of that. As Paul said, if there had been a law which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But it's powerless to save. It's a sterile marriage. Us, the flesh and the law, brings forth no fruit. Now, we come to the grace of God. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son. That's grace. Amen. Bethesda means house of grace. And did you notice where it's located? At the sheep gate. What happened at the sheep gate? That's where they brought the sheep in. You'll learn some things here, I'll tell you. <laughs> Why is that significant? Why did they bring sheep through there? They brought them through that gate to take them to the temple to offer them up as a sacrifice. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus. The, the house of grace, the sheep gate, where the, he made his sacrifice for us so that we might experience the full grace of God in our lives. Now, as I say, five is also the number of grace. You know that. Five Levitical sacrifices. See if I can remember them. The burnt offering, the meal offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering. All needed to show the perfect picture of salvation that we have in Jesus. Five wounds of Jesus in his body, two in his hands, two in his feet, one in his side, the grace of God. God's given his son for us. And five especially not only speaks of grace but the abundance of grace. Remember, David took five stones to kill Goliath. How many did he use? One. I used to teach, and I've heard other preachers teach me not to copy other preachers. 
that the other four were for his four brothers, Goliath's four brothers. Well, David never slew Goliath's other four brothers when you read the Bible. And he, none of them were slain by a stone anyway. So why, why five stones? And he only needed one. Shows the abundance of grace. There's more than enough. There's not just enough. There's more than enough for our needs. Amen? Five loaves. Two fishes. Five loaves to feed 5,000 plus. Probably 15 to 20,000, I reckon, as a, as a you know, crowd. 5,000 men plus women plus children. And then afterwards, 12 baskets full over. More than enough. The abundance of grace. Jesus is not only enough, he's more than enough. Then look at this beautiful picture here in the life of um, uh, Joseph and Benjamin. Then he took servants uh, to them. This is Joseph, took servants to them from before him. But Benjamin's servant was five times as much as any of theirs. Why? Why Benjamin? Because, well, Joseph had 11 brothers, but 10 of them were brothers from another mother, right? Benjamin and Joseph were both the children of Rachel. So it was his real brother. And so there's grace for the world, but friends, there's abundant grace for the brethren of Christ, the church, us. There's abundance of grace, amen? He gave all of them, he gave to all of them, to each man, changes of garments but to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments abundance beautiful picture of the grace of God this whole picture is shows us the 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 the, the inadequacy of the law and the abundance of God's grace hallelujah okay we come to the miracle Jesus said to him rise take up your bed and walk and immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked and that day was the Sabbath. Instead of saying, I'll help you into the water, which is where his faith was, on the water, the stirring of the water and on someone to help him, Jesus gave him a commandment, get up, pick up your bed and walk. The gospel is a command. Now we say it's an invitation. I guess it is, but it's more than that. It's a command. It's a command. Evangelism is a command to obey the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's more than just a suggestion. It's a command. Listen to what John says in his epistle. Not, not now his gospel, his epistle. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments See, some people jump at that and they say, see, we've got to keep the, the commandments. That's not the Big Ten. That's not the Old Testament. This, these are the commandments that Jesus gave, his commandments. And do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave his commandment. That's the commandment. Amen. Romans chapter 10, Paul's quoting from Isaiah, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report. Can you see? Obedience to the gospel is synonymous to believing the gospel. It's not just, okay, it's out there. Um, this might do you good. Try it. Come and, you know, see. It's a command. 
to obey the gospel. Paul says in Romans 1 verse 5, through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Acts chapter 6 verse 7, and the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. What does that mean? They believed the gospel. They believed the gospel. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 7, this is why it's important to obey. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? You know, that's the, that's the thing that's going to take place at the great white throne of the judgment. Did you believe the gospel? What did you do with my son who gave his life on the cross? Laid down his life, became a sacrifice. What did you do? Did you believe in him? Did you receive him? If not, Paul says here, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So under grace, obedience is believing the gospel. Now, Jesus commanded him to do two things. Rise, roll up your bed, and walk. Now, you, you probably know the beds in those days. It wasn't like a uh, posturepedic king-size bed. <laughs> It was just a, what they call a pallet, like a, just a, a roll-away, very thin mattress, okay? One that you can just roll away and take up. So Jesus said, rise, roll up your bed, indicating you're, you're coming out of there and you're not going back there, okay? You're leaving that life of death, sickness. You're leaving that and walk. Now, he could not walk to the water to be healed, but now he can walk because Jesus told him that we could not walk to the water to be healed but now we can walk worthy the key the, this, this is you know what does this miracle illustrate this is what it illustrates it goes a step further it shows us that beyond uh, the forgiveness of sins there's the empowerment to walk worthy of our lord jesus christ you know in uh, the book of hebrew uh, sorry the book of ephesians is a beautiful picture of this the first three chapters tells us all that jesus has done for us there's not one word of exhortation i love that you won't find one word to do anything but all of this is what he's done then chapter 4 verse 1 the second half of the book he says therefore i beseech you to walk worthy walk worthy of the lord jesus christ walk worthy walk in the light You've been in the darkness, now walk. You can walk in the light. How do you do that? You walk in the spirit. It's the empowerment that he gives to us. Amen. And when he said rise and walk, the withered sinews and muscles receive strength. And he was able to get up out of that bed, roll it up and walk. The same gospel that saves us changes us. He who said, rise up to a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years has the right to say, take up your bed and walk. Get out of here. Don't go back there, but walk. And you know, we do walk. The Christian life is a walk. We talk about walking with the Lord. Sometimes we stumble. Sometimes we fall. 
The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Though he fall, he shall not be cast down. We get up again and we keep walking. Amen. Who hasn't fallen? We've all fallen at different times, at different stages. We've all stumbled. But the grace of God picks us back up on our feet and this word comes to us again. Now walk. Keep walking. Keep walking. You're a new creation. Keep going forward. Keep walking. Amen. He who says to us, you are washed, you are clean, you are holy, you are righteous, also says, therefore offer your members as servants of righteousness unto holiness. There is a walk that corresponds with this new life. Okay. Let's go on to see the response of the Jews. The Jews, therefore, said to him who was cured... It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. He probably thought, oh, I'll help them out. And just... <laughs> no, I don't think he was delving there. Personally, I don't think that. We'll have a look at that now. The Pharisees, isn't it amazing? The Pharisees, when, he, when, when they said, you should be carrying your bed on the Sabbath, he said, well, someone healed me. And the man that healed me, after being there for 38 years, he said to me, take up your bed and walk. They didn't say, who is the one that healed you? What did they say? Who is the one that said, take up your bed and walk? Who is that man? Is don't you find that absolutely incredible? Once again, we see that it is religion that will oppose Christ and the gospel most fiercely. Unless we subscribe to their creed and observe their rules of conduct, we will know persecution and eventually ostracism. The two most important things, never forget this, the two most important things are God and people. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbour as yourself. To the degree that we are self-righteous like the Pharisees, to that degree we'll be void of the love for God and people. They didn't love God. They didn't love his son. They didn't love this man. They didn't care when he was sick. They didn't rejoice when he was healed. All they were interested in is he's carrying his bed on the Sabbath. The man responded correctly. He hid behind Christ. Why are you doing that? Because he told me to. That's what you do when you come under condemnation. When you come under attack, you just hide behind Jesus. He's your righteousness. Amen. He's sufficient. Didn't argue about the Sabbath. Just said Jesus. Well, he didn't say Jesus. He didn't know his name. But then Jesus found the man. He was looking for him. He was, because he was looking for him. He found him because he was looking for him. Okay? That is, Jesus was looking for the man. The man was trying to find out who, the name of the person that healed him. But Jesus was looking for the man. There's a reason for that. He said to him, sin no more. Just like he said to the woman in adultery. Now, first of all, he says to her, 
neither do I condemn you. Where are your, where are your accusers? There are none, Lord. Neither do I condemn you. Then he said, go and sin no more. Religion reverses that order. He says, sin no more, and then we will not condemn you. But until you can live a sinless life, you're always going to be condemned. You're always going to be a failure. But that woman had sinned. She lived an immoral life. What sin did this man commit? Why did Jesus find him, look, you know, search for him to tell him this? Because he knew what would happen. The Pharisees would get to him, try to paint a bad picture of him, Jesus, as one who was not sent from God, one who broke the law, etc., etc., and don't trust in him. So the sin that Jesus was referring to is unbelief. They would try to get you, as they did, not to believe in me. You've been healed by me. Go and sin no more. He now has a choice to obey religion or to believe in Jesus. So this beautiful picture of the healing at the house of grace is once again a, a beautiful example and illustration of how it is all by the grace of God. Grace, 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 all the way through. Shines through. It's all about Jesus, the lamb being brought in through the sheep gate, being offered for us so that we, have this, we are now in this house of grace where we're experiencing the grace of God. But, but with that grace, there comes the power to live the life that he's called us to live. Amen. Rise. Leave that where you've been taken from. Take up your bed, roll it up, and walk. Beautiful picture of the total salvation. Pardon from the penalty of sin. Power. Uh, sorry, freedom from the power of sin. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for this beautiful account of healing that speaks so vividly and loudly to each of us, Lord, of the wonderful grace of God that teaches us to not only rejoice in forgiveness of sin, but to say also no to sin and yes to righteousness, to deny sin and ungodliness, and to be a people who now are zealous of good works. And so, Father, we just thank you and rejoice in all that you've done for us, all that you're doing in us, on all that you're going to do through us by the grace of God. Amen. Amen. Amen.